0: Thank you for listening to City Awakening Podcast. City Awakening is a gospel-centered church located in East Orlando that plants new churches, striving to be a multicultural, multi-generational church. For more information about City Awakening, follow us on social media or visit www.cityawakening.org. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Lewis. I'm the lead pastor here at um, City Awakening. Uh, so it's great to worship with you both here on site and to those of you who are watching online. Um, I do want to say just a little bit. If you're thinking like, man, the pastor looks tired this morning. Yeah, I, I am tired. Okay, I've been dealing a lot with my uh, father this past week. You know, probably operating on maybe four to five hours of of sleep. So like, you know, but I mean, I had you know a couple shots of espresso this morning. So amen to the espresso drinkers. Okay. Uh, so I'm getting a little wired up here, uh, fired up here today. But I want I wanted to let you know too that my father is officially out of the hospital now. So I'm very thankful for that. I know you all have been praying for that. And so I'm um, happy for that. You know, he's still going to have a long road to recovery, but uh, I am very thankful for all your prayers. Wanted to give you that little update that he is out. So if I look tired, that is why I am tired. Been dealing with a lot of that. So, uh, but excited to be here today. We are continuing the teaching series that we've been doing called Visible God, which is all about um, seeing God through the life of Jesus. All right, we're studying a book of the Bible called The God of John which records the life and the words of Jesus as it was written by an original follower or an original source of Jesus now we are in the final few chapters of this study and in these final few chapters it brings us to a place in history where we're studying the trial the crucifixion the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus today's text is taking us to the point in history where we are studying the crucifixion of Jesus And when a lot of us think about the crucifixion of Jesus, a lot of times what we focus on and what we think about is the great suffering of the cross, and rightfully so to think about that, because historically we know that the Romans were experienced at persecution and at executionary techniques, and we know that the crucifixion was one of their primary, most painful executionary techniques that they used. And so, without a doubt, the question is not, did Jesus suffer tremendously? We know he suffered tremendously just by looking at the history of of the executionary methods of the crucifixion. So the question isn't, did Jesus suffer tremendously? The question is, was his suffering a pointless tragedy? That's the question. The question is, was his suffering a pointless tragedy that helps nobody? Or was it actually a great victory that can help anybody, including anybody in this room right now, anybody who's watching our services online? This is what we are going to address today, all right? Was His suffering on the cross a pointless tragedy, or was it actually a great victory that can help anybody, maybe even you, all right? And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them over to John chapter 19. We'll be in John chapter 19, verses 16 to 37. I uh, will also have the words on the screen for you, but if you open your Bible to the middle, keep turning to the right, you'll find the Gospel of John there. We'll be in John 19, starting off in verse 16. Title of today's message, for those of you taking notes, is The Crucifixion of Jesus. All right, and here's the big idea of the message The crucifixion appears to be a tragedy, but it ends up being a great victory. All right, the crucifixion of Jesus appears to be a tragedy, but it ends up being a great victory uh, for you and for me. And you're going to see that in today's text. You'll you'll see why. Uh, Let me give you just a little bit of context here, okay? At this point in John chapter 19, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate has already given Jesus a death sentence. Now, he already said he's going to crucify Jesus. And and he already actually, on three different occasions, he, he says that Jesus is innocent. So three different times he declares Jesus' innocence, but he's moving forward with the execution of Jesus because he's been facing all kinds of pressures from the Jews and the Roman Empire, especially the Roman Emperor Tiberius Caesar. He's been feeling these pressures from from the emperor, and so he's kind of caving in because he's worried about the Jews having another riot if he doesn't fulfill their wish to crucify Jesus, and so he caves under that pressure in fear of the Roman Emperor. And so he moves forward with the orders to crucify. Jesus, and it's a historical event that is recorded in all four Gospels that are found in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, what's interesting about John's account of this, his record, is that he focuses more on the victory of the cross than he does so much on the suffering of the cross. He focuses more on how the crucifixion of Jesus is actually a victory for us. It's fulfilling God's plans, and he focuses a lot on how Jesus turns the shame of the cross into a great victory for us. So when he's writing this account of Jesus' death, he's wanting us to write it while keeping in mind the fact that this is a great victory for us. Now, he doesn't want us to read this so much focusing on the suffering on Christ, but how the suffering of Christ became a victory for us. And so here's what I'm gonna do in the text, okay? For those again, get, again, taking notes, I'm gonna break it down into three primary sections that we're gonna look at today. We're gonna study the shame of the cross, the victory of the cross, and the fulfillment of God's plans in the cross, all right? So, the victory, or I'm sorry, the shame, the victory, and the fulfillment. That's what we're going to take a look at. That's how we're going to break it down. So, here we go. John chapter 19, verses 16 to 37 says this. Then he, meaning Pontius Pilate, then he handed Jesus over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus away, all right? So, Pilate orders the crucifixion to happen. The Roman soldiers come, and they take Jesus away to prep the crucifixion. Now, at this point in the text, Jesus has already been, been flogged, uh, which is you know, just a, a horrendous beating that people would receive from the Romans, and many people actually died from Roman floggings alone. It was a way for them to maximize the pain and the punishment of the crucifixion, but many people died from the Roman floggings alone, and the reason is because they would take um, basically these leather whips and kind of break them up into little cords, and then they would weave into it um, pieces of, of bone, sharp bones. Sometimes if you look at it, you've uh, just from an archaeological perspective, you'll see that they have some hooks on them. Almost looks like they're uh, like a fishing hook sometimes. And it was to be able to sink into the person's flesh as they are being whipped. And so people lost a tremendous amount of blood when they were flogged um, to the point to where many of them died. Well, at this point in the text, Jesus has already been flogged. He has the crown of thorns that are piercing into his skull. He has lost a lot of blood, so he is very weak. Jesus is weak and wounded, and they decide to put a big wooden crossbeam on his back for him to carry to the execution site. They did not… Usually, um, they would keep the vertical part of the cross at the execution site, and then they would make the person carry the, the thick wooden crossbeam to their execution site, which you'll see the text mentions next. Verse 17. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. All right, so… Here is Jesus, weak and wounded. He's having to carry his cross in the public streets to the place where he's going to be executed. It was a way for them to publicly shame the person that was being crucified. They basically wanted you to go through one one of the more public areas so that everybody can see you having to carry your cross through the streets. They would do this to shame you. All right, and now Jesus is having to do this, and he's having to carry it to the place called the skull. Now, in Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel, we learn that Jesus is weak during this time, and he actually stumbles because of the loss of blood, right? So he's weak, he stumbles, and so the Romans order some guy by the name of Simon Cyrene to help Jesus carry his cross to the execution site, which is the skull. Now, the skull uh, was uh, basically a smaller hill that was roughly eye level so that people could actually see the crucifixion taking place. The Romans were intentional in this. I mean, they were very methodical in their things that they would do. They wanted Jesus to be crucified at eye level, again, to publicly shame him, right? Whoever was crucified, I mean, let's do it in a way that people can see it with their very own eyes happening so we can publicly shame them even more, as well as put fear in people so that they'll say, hey, don't do what that person did. If you do what they did, then that's going to be you. You're next. This is what they're doing with Jesus, right? They are making him carry his cross through the streets to publicly shame him and then to crucify him at roughly eye view so that everybody can see what's happening. Verse 18, there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Now, like I said last week, it was supposed to be Barabbas that was in the middle. It was supposed to be Barabbas who was guilty, but instead it's Jesus who is innocent, Jesus stands in the place of Barabbas, who is guilty of sin, just like he stands in the place for us, even though we're guilty of sin. Jesus stood in our place. He's not supposed to be the one in the middle. It's supposed to be Barabbas, but he freely and willingly goes to die for our sins on the cross to be able to set us free from sin and to be able to enjoy eternal life in him. Jesus was innocent. Verse 19, Pilate also had a sign made and put it on the cross, It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. In other words, they wanted everybody in the region to be able to read it. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I've written, I've written. So historically, what we know is they would take a sign… And the Romans would put it on the cross so that people can see the person's name and the crime. That's what they would write on the sign. Here's the person who's crucified. This is their name, and then this is the crime that they committed. So Pilate tells his soldiers, here's what I want you to write on Jesus' sign. I want you to say, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews… And the reason why he says that is because he's throwing shade, basically, at the Jews. He's, he's throwing a jab at the Jews. He's trying to—he knows this is going to frustrate them, so he's kind of getting even with them because of, you know, the, all the tensions and political issues that they've been creating between him and the Roman emperor. So he's and then, yeah, we don't like that. So changing—I ain't changing that. I'm getting back at you, right, for doing all this. I mean, you kind of manipulated me during this time uh, to try and get what you wanted, which is Jesus being crucified. I tried to tell you he was innocent three different times— But you put this pressure on me, and so you know what? Here's my way of getting even with you. And so this is why he he has that written on the sign. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, They divided my clothes among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Notice that the text says that they took his clothes and his tunic, meaning they stripped him naked. All right, they took his his, um, outer garments, and then they took his undergarments, which was his tunic, to crucify Jesus naked. It was another way for them to publicly shame Jesus. It was another way for them to embarrass him and those who were being crucified. And it was, it was this, you know, let's, let's shame Jesus, you know, let's take his clothes, let's do all these things. And, and so here's what we are seeing in the text. What we're seeing in the text is there's so much shame that's affiliated with the cross, I mean, think about that, right? Jesus is being publicly shamed by having to carry his cross in front of his friends and his family members, in front of all his neighbors and people. He's being publicly shamed by being crucified on a hill that is eye level so that everybody can see. And he's being publicly shamed by being stripped of all his his clothing, clothing so that he could be crucified naked. There is so much shame that is affiliated in the cross. Tremendous amount of shame. And the sad thing is, Jesus didn't deserve any of it. He was innocent. He didn't deserve any of it. But you know what? He freely and willingly carried the weight and the shame of the cross so we don't have to carry the weight and the shame of our sin. He willingly suffered in shame on the cross so you don't have to live with the shame of your sin. Jesus didn't just suffer Pain on our behalf. He suffered shame on our behalf. Right? Jesus didn't just suffer, suffer pain on our behalf. A lot of times we look at the pain that he suffered. No, he also suffered shame on our behalf, Look, everybody in this room, whether you're a a skeptic or not, everybody watching online, whether you're a skeptic or not, we all have different shameful areas in our lives that that we try to keep hidden, that we don't want other people knowing about. It could be maybe mental issues that we're struggling with. It could be physical things. It could be emotional things. It could be, I mean, how many times in churches do you see Christians trying to put up a front sometimes, acting like everything's okay in their life? Because if I all of a sudden start talking about my pains and my struggles and my hardship that I've been going through this week, then all of a sudden I'm a weak Christian. It's not true. You even see Jesus weeping when he sees his friend Lazarus die. Don't tell me that Jesus was weak. You see Jesus on the cross crying out, why have you forsaken me? Yet so often we come in with a front acting like everything's okay and I'm okay. I can't tell you can't tell you about my problems as a pastor. Can't tell you about because if I do, then all of a sudden I'm weak in my faith. So what we try to do is we try to bury this stuff. We try to hide this stuff. You know, maybe mental issues we're wrestling with, physicality, emotions, spiritual things that we're wrestling with, because we're afraid if people see the true thing, then they may reject us. We are afraid to reveal the true nakedness of our soul. But you know who sees through that? You know who sees all of that? It's Jesus City Awakening, Jesus sees right through all the facade, all the fake, he sees right through all all the outer garments, the fake Instagram image that we try to portray to the world, right into the nakedness of your very soul. You know what he does? He's still willing to go to the cross for you. Despite knowing it all, knowing all the baggage, all the insecurities. All the deepest, darkest sins in your life that you've kept hidden that nobody else knows about, Jesus knows, and yet he still is willing to go to the cross for you. Nobody can ever love you like Jesus loves you. They can't. It's impossible to. You want to know why? Because only Jesus fully knows you and can fully love you. Nobody else fully knows you, therefore they cannot fully love you. The love that you experience from your family, from your friends, even from a spouse is really just a shadow of love compared to the love of Jesus. It's a shadow of love because because they can't fully know you. It's impossible to. They cannot fully know every thought that you have ever had and every action that you have ever done. Therefore, they can only partially love you. See, Jesus fully knows you, which means He can fully love you, and He can also speak into some of the dark spots that exist in your life, even spots that you don't even realize are an issue for your life. He can reveal those things through the truth of His Word and through prayer and, and show you, hey man, this, is, this spot in your life, man, it's, it's an issue for your life. And then He can give you healing in those things. Jesus sees through it all and he's still willing to go to the cross. This is how you know that Jesus loves you. You want to know how how uh, how he you want you want to know how you can know that he has a deep affection for you. This is it. By looking at the cross. By looking at the guilt and the or looking at the um, pain and the shame that he was willing to go for um, go through for us on the cross. If Jesus Christ did not love you then he wouldn't have gone through the pain and the shame of the cross for you, but he goes through the pain and the shame of the cross for you because he has a deep affection for you, all right? Nobody can ever fully love you like Jesus fully loves you because nobody can ever fully know you like he does. There is so much shame in the cross, yet there's also a great amount, tremendous amount of love in the cross, and he proves that love through his death. All right, text continues. Verse 25 Standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clovis, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Jesus is looking out for his mother here, and he's basically saying, uh, you know, he wants to make sure that his mother's cared for by one of his disciples. And what, what is incredible to me about this, you know, sometimes we'll, I think we'll just read scriptures and we don't stop and we don't think about the great character of God, and, and I think what we see here is, is even as Jesus is suffering um, his most painful moment in life, he is still thinking about the well-being of others. That's how loving he is. That's how generous Jesus is. That's how caring he is. Think about that. He is suffering the most um, tremendous pain ever in his life. And in this moment, he's still thinking about the well-being of others, especially his mother. Verse 28, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. Um, the, uh, the wine that he's talking about here is a different wine than what you see in Mark um, chapter 15. In Mark chapter 15, that was a wine that was mixed with, with myrrh. Uh, and so the soldiers would drink a sour wine in order to be able to quench their thirst. I mean, you got to think, right, where they're in the hot Middle Eastern heat. And so you know, a lot of people would actually die from thirst and dehydration because of the heat as they were being crucified. Well, the soldiers had this sour wine that they would basically drink. And you know, some say it might have been like vinegar or whatever. And so you know, I don't know how that, that's going to quench your thirst but I don't know. So anyway, so they would drink that to actually quench some of their thirst, uh, but in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 15, it says that, you know, Jesus was also offered uh, wine with, with uh, myrrh on it, which was acting more like a sedative for people, um, you know, to help to kind of relieve some pain. Well, Jesus drinks the, the sour wine, but he rejects the wine with, with myrrh, so it's not like he's receiving a sedative in this moment. He drinks the sour wine so that he can quench his dry, parched throat to be able to usher out one final victorious phrase, right? It's one final thing. One, he's trying to quench his thirst and his dry, parched mouth so that he has enough strength to usher out these words in verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He said, it is finished. Shouted it victoriously. It is finished. And then he breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. Meaning he died. Notice, nobody took his life. He freely gave up his life. He gave up his spirit and breathed his last. He died. With his very last breath of life that he had, He victoriously shouted out the words, it is finished. How is that a victory? How does that turn the shame of the cross into a great victory for us? It's because when Jesus is saying this, he is is basically declaring a victory of salvation for us. When he says it is finished, he is saying that the work he came to do is finished. The salvation work he came to do is now finished, which was to pay the death penalty that we deserve to die for our sins. That's what Jesus is saying. See, the Greek phrase, it is finished, comes from the, the Greek word called All right, and, and it basically means it is, it is finished or paid in full. Literally means paid in full. It'd be like what you would say you know, if you had a big debt, like maybe let's just say a, a mortgage debt that you, know, you owed a ton of money on and then all of a sudden you, know, you, you paid it off. You paid it, and you say it's finished, it's done, it's paid for, it's paid in full. This is exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that we have accrued an infinite massive amount of sin debt against God and yet he's paid it off, he's paid it in full because of his infinite loving sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. He's saying it's paid in full. See, you and I, everybody, I mean, we have all accrued an infinitely massive sin debt against God. We have all, at least throughout our lifetime, we have at some point and often rejected God, rebelled against God, turned our backs on God, contributed to the destruction of God's creation, contributed to the destruction of our world with our... Our sinful words and our sinful actions. Jesus is saying, We're not exempt from that. Everybody has accumulated an infinitely massive sin against God. But Jesus paid that debt off through his loving sacrifice for us on the cross. And he said, It's finished. I've paid it in full. The transaction is done. You are now free. You're free indeed. It's these words, it is finished, that turns the shame of the cross into a great victory of salvation for us. And these final words, here's one of the things that I love so much about this part of the text, is that his final, I mean, obviously that is the most joyful part of the text, right? I'm saying it is finished, but here's what's incredible to me. It's that those final words are unique compared to every other religious teacher that has ever existed in human history. That is a unique teaching compared to every other religious teaching that exists in human history because every other religious teacher that has ever existed in human history says that you have to work hard to gain God's love, gain God's favor, gain salvation for your life. Every other religious teacher in human history teaches that. For example, if you are to study the teachings of Buddha, what you will find is not an assurance of salvation. You will find a constant striving for your salvation. The last words of Jesus were, it is finished. The last words of Buddha, work hard to gain your salvation. Look it up, Google it. Those are the last words of Buddha. Work hard to gain your salvation. Those are two totally different teachings. Jesus is saying that our salvation is received. Buddha is saying that our salvation is achieved. The teachings of Jesus is true and can provide so much liberation and rest for our weary souls. They can provide so much rest because what Jesus says is so much more in touch with the reality of everyday life for you. So much more in touch with the reality of everyday life for me. You want to know what the reality is? The reality is that you stumble every day. I stumble every day. That's the reality. The reality is, is no matter how hard you try to be a good person and to do good deeds, you are still going to stumble in life. Some of you are just trying to be good people. You're trying to be spirit. You may not be a good follower of Christ, but you just want to be a good person. You're going to fail at that. You're going to stumble at that. We all do. See, as Christians, our desire is to walk in holiness. Our desire is to grow into becoming more and more Christ-like. So somebody calls us a hypocrite, we're like, yeah, you know what? You're right, we are. Because there are times when I fail. There are times when I don't live out the very things that I want to live out. But so are you. Because everybody stumbles. And so if salvation is up to you living a perfect perfect enough life, you're never going to make it. The words of Buddha places a very heavy burden on your soul because it sets a standard that you're never ever going to be able to live up to. The words of, of Buddha puts a very heavy burden on your soul. It's a constant burden of feeling like you're never good enough, and so you have to keep trying harder, like Buddha said, and every other religious teacher in the world says, in order to gain God's love, favor, and salvation for your life. The words of Buddha places a heavy burden on your soul, but the words of Jesus can provide so much rest for your weary, busted-up soul. They can provide so much rest for your soul. Because Jesus is saying, no, no, your salvation is not achieved, it is received. It is received through faith in my finished work on the cross. This means that, that you don't have to, to this, this is what's so incredibly, incredibly living about it, okay? liberating about it. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that, listen, you, you don't have to keep living in the burden and shame of who you are and what you've done or who you aren't and what you aren't doing. Instead, you can live in the finished victorious work of who I am and what I've done. You can live knowing that my final words to you were not try harder. It was, it is finished. Those last words of Jesus are what turn the shame of the cross into a great victory for us. Those last words of Jesus can turn your shame of sin into a great victory in him. Verse 31. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross, or on the cross, on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a special day. In other words, hey, let's go, let's just go celebrate, let's go to, let's go to, hey, take that down please because, I mean, that's just gonna clout our celebration here so can y'all speed the process up? Like, I mean, just the hypocrisy behind it, right? We're going to go celebrate this holy day and, you know, we just need to get rid of that, please. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken, that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once, blood and water came out. So here's what's happening here. Um, What the Romans would basically do is is they would break the legs of those who were crucified to accelerate their death, to speed up the process a bit. But they don't break Jesus' legs because... They believe that Jesus is already dead, but just to make sure, they have to make sure, because if not, if they mess up the execution, no matter who the execution is, then it means that they're going to be the ones that are next. So they have to make sure that he's dead. So they basically pierce him in the side, um, in the heart, to make sure that he's dead. This is why it's so ridiculous when people say, well, Jesus didn't really die. No, it's hard for you to stay alive if there's a sword in, in your heart, right? Jesus literally, physically died in this moment. They didn't break his legs, though. They pierced him in the heart. Verse 35, he who saw this has testified so that you may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. No, not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another Scripture says they will look at the one they pierced. John, the author, has just given us the very reason he is recording this. He says, the reason is so that you will believe. That would include us today. He says he's recorded that so, so that you would believe in the finished work of Christ for your salvation. But how do, how do we know? Like, how do we know he's, this is true? How do we know he's telling the, how do we know Jesus really can? How can we be certain that he really can turn the shame of the cross into a victory of salvation for us? John repeatedly says, by the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, by the fulfillment of Scripture, he said that repeatedly, right? He says four different times, he says all of this is happening according to God's plan. All of this is happening as a fulfillment of Scripture. According to one scholar that I read, he said there are 20, at at least, I quote, right, at least 20 Old Testament fulfillment of prophecies here in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. At least 20. So to give you just a, a little example of that, right, roughly um, th- a thousand years before all of this is taking place, so actually a little, over a thousand years before Jesus is crucified, King David starts prophesying about, he starts talking, uh, writing about the future execution of our Messiah, of our Savior. So, he starts describing what this is going to be like, and he starts describing it from the perspective of the sufferer. And so, he starts to explain, so again, keep in mind, thousand years before the crucifixion happens, he starts describing some things that we actually just read in the text. He starts talking about, you know, how how the Messiah, the Savior, is going to suffer thirst. He's going to be surrounded by what would be considered to be the Roman dogs, a gang of Roman dogs that are going to surround him. He's going to be pierced in his hands and his feet. And he's even going to have his garments divided amongst them. This is in Psalm 22 that King David writes these things. He states, My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. Scholars agree that this is ne- he is not talking about himself here, David, because he's a king and he hasn't gone through this. So this has been a baffling puzzle for Jewish scholars for years. And what's cool is if you study what Messianic Jews say about this, meaning Jewish people who have now become Christians and have seen Jesus revealed in the Old Testament, they'll say, oh yeah, he is certain. We, we have that mystery figured out now. We know who David is talking about. He is pointing to Christ. In the future crucifixion of Jesus. David writes this a thousand years before Jesus is crucified. Psalm 34, verse 20, he protects all his bones, not one of them is broken. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him, and we are held, we are healed by his wounds. I mean, the list can go on. Here's what John the author is saying here he's saying hey you want you want to be certain that all of this is true you want to be certain that Jesus can turn the shame of the cross into salvation for you a victory of salvation for you here's how you know he says look at the numerous old testament prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled because you can't you can't just fulfill that Here's what was written. Here's when it was written, thousand plus years, and then all, all here they're fulfilled in Him, in Jesus. Look at His story. Look at the history. Look at what He's done. That's how you know that it's all true. And then what He's going to do in a few weeks is He's going to give us an even greater piece of evidence that it's all true, which is the evidence of the resurrection. The resurrection becomes the exclamation point at the end of the cross that proves that everything that Jesus has ever said, done, and promised is true, including his promise that it is finished. We're going to study that in a few weeks. For now, this is the big idea of the message. It is that the crucifixion appears to be a tragedy, but it actually ends up becoming a great victory. When Jesus says the words, it is finished, He isn't crying out in relief. He is shouting victoriously in triumph. Jesus is shouting victoriously in triumph over the fact that he's won and anybody who trusts in him will win. He's shouting victoriously in triumph over the fact that that he has defeated sin's curse on humanity and that he has defeated humanity's greatest enemy, which is death. Jesus has literally put death to death. He's literally put death in a coffin. He has literally put death in a tomb. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, he put death in a tomb. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, he put death in a tomb, proving that his death on the cross is not a pointless tragedy. Instead, it is a magnificent victory for me and for you, for anyone who believes. So if you are a skeptic, man, trust him as your Savior today. Trust him fully as your savior today. Everything else you've been trying to find to save your life and your soul and your busted up weariness that's inside of you has never satisfied you and it never will. Trust Jesus as your savior today. If you are a believer, man, find your rest in Jesus as your savior today. Man, rest your soul in him today. City Awakening, let us not, don't look At Jesus' death on the cross as a contribution to your salvation that you have to finish. You will never find rest that way. You will never find rest if you are trying to treat Jesus' death on the cross as if it's just simply a tack on, a contribution to your salvation that you have to complete. No, it's not. Jesus isn't a contribution to your salvation. He's the completion of your salvation. He is not a contribution to your salvation. He is the finished work of your salvation. So this is the good news of that. It is that you don't, man, you you can stop pretending. You can stop pretending to be something that you're not. Trying to gain the approval of other people for your life because you already have the approval of Jesus, despite the fact that he knows who you are and what you aren't. You can stop trying to find the assurance of love because Jesus has already given you the assurance of his love. You can stop walking around in the shame of your sin, which so many of you have been beating yourselves up this week. Jesus already took the beating for you on the cross. You don't have to keep walking in the shame of your sin and you don't have to keep, li- you don't have to keep living as if you're still a slave to sin. Why? Why? Because Jesus already died for your sins and he's already given you the resurrection power to be able to overcome your sins. You will never find rest living according to the final words of Buddha saying, try harder. You will find so much rest and joy and peace for your weary soul if you believe, you trust, and you live according to the final words of Jesus saying, it is finished. Let's pray. Jesus, there are so many names in this room, so many stories, stories filled with hurts, with hardships. past struggles, issues, sins that have been done against them, against me, or sins we've committed against others. Jesus, so many people watching online right now who are just wrestling with various different things. Jesus, help us to trust and the full work that you have done on the cross. Give us the strength to continue moving forward instead of sitting in our grief and our shame burdened by the weight and the pains of this world. Help us to pick our heads back up again, Lord. Not because we're great and we're strong and you know, we've got the bravado to be able to do it, but Jesus, because you're great and you're strong and you have the power to do it. I pray that we would not operate in the flesh, but that we would operate in the spirit and the truth of your love. I pray that you would provide comfort in this room where comfort is needed. Salvation in this room where salvation is needed. Peace where peace is needed. Forgiveness, where forgiveness is needed. Even forgiveness amongst maybe couples in the room or family members in the room or friendships. Jesus, do the healing work that only you have the power to do. Set us free from our sins. Set us free from our shame. Help us to walk in that freedom. May your truth speak louder than any lies that exist in our minds and in our hearts. Help us to love you more fully, Jesus just as we are fully known and fully loved by you. We pray this in your beautiful name. Let us rejoice over the sweet words, the victory words, victorious words. It is finished. Amen.